Humans are storytellers. During our species time on Earth, countless myths have been born, endless legends spun. Folk tales, fables, and fairy tales are among the most enduring examples of our capacity for storytelling. In the distant future, when humanity has established itself firmly as an interplanetary species, what tales might have emerged along the way? What stories might Martian settlers tell each other during long, cold nights on the Red Planet? What myths might arise as humans spread across the solar system and eventually reach for the stars? This is Space Age Folk Tales. In this episode, we will explore a children's story that became popular in the Earth-Moon system in the 2130s and spread to the fledgling Martian colonies over the solar web. Having emerged among an explosion of interest and activity in the realm of space exploration, the story anthropomorphizes the celestial bodies of the solar system, giving life and personalities to Jupiter, Mars, and plenty of others. Although the story contains many familiar faces, so to speak, the planet at the center of the action cannot be found in the solar system today at all. You see, although there are only four giant planets in the solar system now, one model of the solar system's chaotic early days suggests that there was once a fifth giant that was booted from the system by the gravitational interactions between it and other planets. Although this model called the Five-Planet Nice model, has not been fully proven. It clearly served as inspiration for the progenitors of this story, whoever they were. The story spread via both writing and by mouth, and there are many different variations of the tale. The version we will be reading today is one that became popular on the solar web, and is likely largely responsible for the story's leap to the colonies of Mars. It's not exactly a scientific treatise, but its incorporation of theories about the early solar system shows just how much the spaceflight boom affected early 22nd century culture on every level and transformed the way humans live and think. This is the story of the fifth giant. Author Unknown Long ago, when the solar system was young, and humanity was not yet anything more than dust. The planets roamed freely around the sun, moving here and there, wherever they wished. Mighty Jupiter, huge and powerful even in his youth, was the leader of the throng, and no one dared challenge his reign. The planets mostly stuck to their own. Gas giants socialized with gas giants. The bigger rocky planets hobnobbed with one another, overlooked by their gigantic counterparts, and the bigger rocky planets ignored, in turn, the smaller denizens of what we know today as the asteroid and Kuiper belts. I'm sure you know all the planets that are around in our time, from ringed Saturn to crooked Uranus to our mother Earth. Today, the solar system has four inner rocky planets, four outer giants, and a multitude of asteroids and dwarf planets and comets. 
But back in the days when the planets roamed without restriction, there was a fifth giant planet. An ice giant. A little darker blue than Neptune, slightly smaller and denser. He was called Bacchus. Bacchus tended to hang around with Uranus and Neptune in the outer reaches of the solar system, but neither of them liked him very much, although they would never admit it out loud. Jupiter was more vocal about his distaste for the much smaller planet, often grumbling behind Bacchus's back to Saturn, who listened patiently and tried to stay out of it, not feeling like he had much of a dog in the fight anyway. Bacchus was a troublemaker, a mischievous little sprite of a sphere who bullied the rocky planets and played tricks on the other giants. Jupiter couldn't count the number of times the little twerp had come up to him and disturbed his moons while he was sleeping. He had heard Saturn's moons complain of similar trickery once or twice, but it didn't seem to be as frequent for them. It wasn't innocent fun, either. Beneath all the mischief, Bacchus truly resented the larger gas giants and he often ranted to his fellow ice giants about how much he hated Jupiter's tyrannical reign over the solar system. That was one reason Uranus and Neptune didn't like Bacchus. Although he rarely played tricks on them, he talked their ears off about how terrible he thought Jupiter was, and how Saturn was hardly any better, and neither Uranus nor Neptune wanted to be caught talking about Jupiter behind his back, lest they trigger the huge planet's famously stormy temper. Bacchus often took out his frustrations on the smaller planets and objects in the solar system, who weren't strong enough to fight back. He would toss asteroids around, act like he was going to crash Mercury into Venus before veering off at the last second, and play keep away with Earth's moon as the poor planet tried desperately to get her friend back from the wayward giant. The rocky planets hated Bacchus for this, as did most of the asteroids and comets and dwarf planets across the solar system and they hated the other giants as well for treating them as inferior. One day, Bacchus was fuming to Neptune about Jupiter, as usual. He thinks he's the top dog, but the sun could put him in his place real quick, he seethed. He's only a small fry compared to the stars. Any of them could shut him up. You know the sun doesn't involve himself in our drama, replied Neptune. When was the last time he said a word to any of us? He's got other things going on. The stars don't care about us. Well, if the sun won't do anything, then we should do something ourselves, said Bacchus. I'm sick of Jupiter pushing us around and acting like he's better than us, just because he's bigger. If we all work together, maybe we can show our strength and make him think about treating us better. Are you crazy? hissed Neptune, hardly believing what he was hearing. Bacchus had always prodded at Jupiter and pushed his luck as far as it could go. But this sounded different. Bacchus usually challenged Jupiter's authority in a roundabout way, pushing his buttons and subtly undermining his power. But now he seemed to be calling for open revolt. Jupiter is bigger than all of us combined, Neptune continued. Who do you think is going to pull this off? Me, you, and Uranus? Jupiter would just laugh and send us out to the Oort Cloud for a timeout. Even Saturn wouldn't make enough of a difference. Not that he'd ever side with us against Jupiter. We could find some form of leverage, suggested Bacchus. There's got to be something we can do. Maybe we can steal something from him. Maybe his rings? No, stop! 
My Sagittarius, I can't believe I'm even having this conversation, said Neptune. Bacchus, if you know what's good for you, leave and don't bring this up again to anyone. Go spend some time in the Kuiper Belt cooling off. Fine, snapped Bacchus. Since you're too scared to stand up for yourself, I guess I'll have to do it for you. He stormed off toward the sun, cyclones and anticyclones swirling in his atmosphere. Neptune wondered if he should warn Jupiter about the conversation, but he quickly decided that the last thing he wanted to do was involve himself in this situation any further. Jupiter had been known to shoot the messenger before. He had once flung a passing comet into the outer solar system, merely for informing him that a red spot had formed on his face. It was best, Neptune reasoned, to stay out of it. Surely Jupiter could handle himself. Meanwhile, the terrestrial planets, who tended to hang out near the sun, were having a discussion between themselves about the nature of the universe. Surely there are other planets out there, Venus was arguing. It doesn't make any sense for us to be the only ones. Look how many stars there are, and we know from the sun that they're all just as alive as him. If there are other suns, then there must be other planets, just like us. Earth rolled her eyes. The suns never said a word to us about the other stars, or about anything. But Jupiter says, said Venus. Earth laughed. You're going to take Jupiter at his word that he had a conversation with the sun a few millennia ago, when none of us were watching? Anyway, if there is anything orbiting the other stars, I'm sure it's debris at best. Maybe a few simple asteroids have gained consciousness, but there's no proof of anything like us. I mean, look at us. We've got molten cores and everything. It just doesn't seem likely Guys, that- I hate to interrupt, but, uh, it looks like we have a visitor, said Mercury. Earth and Venus looked, and Earth felt her crust tremble a little. Bacchus was flying toward them, storms bubbling up all over his atmosphere. This can't be good, muttered Mars. Remember last time he came over here? He threatened to take all my water. Aw oh, man, you guys gotta hide me. No, said Earth, glaring at the giant as he approached. I say, no more cowering. If we all face him together, we can at least throw him for a loop. Maybe we can make him think twice about coming over here again. Show him we won't take it anymore. Oh, Earth! Bacchus boomed. Where's my favorite double planet system? Earth's face burned. He's just my moon. We are not a double planet system, she snapped. Your berry center says otherwise, said Bacchus as he drew nearer. Their berry center is inside Earth's surface, idiot, snapped Venus, coming to float beside Earth. You're thinking of Pluto and Charon. What do you want? Bacchus glowered at her for a moment, then sighed. All right, enough. Earth was surprised at how downcast he sounded. He was usually full of malevolent glee whenever he came to harass them, but now he just seemed tired and dejected. Look, I was thinking, and... I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I came over here to ask for your help, said Bacchus. Earth was floored. You heard that too, right? The moon whispered in her ear. I'm not dreaming. You're not dreaming, but he might be, muttered Earth. Why would we help you with anything? demanded Venus, snatching the words from Earth before Earth could speak them herself. 
Bacchus towered over them, blotting out the stars behind him. Because, he said, I think we may have a common enemy. Are any of you big fans of Jupiter, by chance? Mars snorted. Jupiter? That jerk won't even give us the time of year. Pretends we don't exist. Treats us like rocks. Yeah, he's always pushing us around, but not intentionally like you do. It's like we're not even there, added Mercury. I feel exactly the same way, said Bacchus. Wouldn't you like to do something about it? Show him we won't take it anymore? Earth exchanged a glance with Venus, then glanced back at Mercury and Mars. After a moment of hesitation, Earth said, What do you have in mind? Today, Saturn's beautiful rings are among the most striking and iconic features in the solar system. In the days of this story, though, they had not yet formed, nor had the much thinner rings around Uranus and Neptune, and Jupiter's rings were a bit thicker than they are today. So he had the only rings of note in the entire solar system, a fact in which he took great pride. Bacchus was well aware of this fact, and since he could not touch Jupiter's great magnetic field, nor defeat him gravitationally, well, with his four terrestrial co-conspirators caught up on his plan, Bacchus waited for Jupiter to sleep before making his move. He watched from afar as the king of the planets settled in for his slumber, and once he was certain Jupiter was soundly asleep, he sent a gravitational tremor through space to where Earth and her small band of rocky rebels lay waiting. Bacchus himself could not get close enough to Jupiter to enact the plan. That much was certain. He was too large, too noticeable. The terrestrial planets, though? They were just the right size for this job. Millions of miles away, Earth felt the tiny gravitational wave nudge her. It was so faint that she doubted she would have noticed it had she not been anxiously awaiting it. All right, she muttered. Are you all ready? Tense affirmations rose around her. Are you sure this is such a good idea? The moon whispered in her ear. Jupiter will be furious when he wakes up. We'll have leverage after this, Earth assured him with a confidence she did not feel. This is our one chance to stand up to Jupiter. I'd rather risk it all now than suffer under his rule for millions of years more. Well, I'm with you, said the moon. Just try to be careful. Earth looked at Mercury. All right. Go ahead, she said. As fast as a comet, the little planet was off. Their little space heist crew had decided that Mercury, being the smallest among them, stood the best chance at getting close to Jupiter, without his gravity awakening the giant planet. Jupiter's moons all tended to sleep at the same time as him and Mercury hoped to somewhat mimic the graceful orbit of massive Ganymede, who was even larger than him, in order to avoid rousing Jupiter. It wouldn't be a perfect disguise, but they were fairly confident it would work well enough on a sleeping Jupiter. Swift little Mercury slid into orbit around the gas giant on the other side of the planet from Ganymede, 
Staying at an altitude he hoped resembled that of the massive moon. Bands of brown and white swirled below him, and he could see some of Jupiter's moons orbiting in the distance, apparently still asleep. And there, far below him, were Jupiter's rings, gleaming in the sunlight and encircling the planet like a thin cloud of smoke. Nearly quaking with nerves, Mercury steeled himself, counted to three, and then dove down, angling himself to intercept the rings. The great, stormy giant beneath him filled his vision, and he forced down his fear. Never before had he been so dangerously close to Jupiter, and he was well aware that if the sleeping giant awoke, he could tear Mercury to pieces in minutes. The rings loomed before him, and Mercury felt a small amount of relief as he positioned himself beside them. So far, so good. There was no indication that Jupiter had stirred yet. Now all that was left to do was gently tug on the ring particles with his gravity, and give them a boost up and away from Jupiter, to where Mars awaited, just beyond the Planet King's hill sphere. Once they escaped the hill sphere, the rings would no longer be gravitationally bound to Jupiter, and so the next phase of their plan would begin. Gently, slowly, Mercury disturbed the orbit of the ring particles, pulling them up into a semi-orbit around himself, and flinging them up and away from Jupiter. The rings became a line, streaming off into space, and soon, Mercury had sent all the particles away. Weak with relief, he watched the tail end of the line grow more and more distant, and prepared to boost himself into a higher orbit with gravity assist from the unsuspecting Jupiter. High above the great tyrant of the solar system, Mars watched as the once and future rings streamed toward him. Okay, come on, Mars, he muttered to himself. You can do this. He let the rings flow around him, guiding the particles as they swung into orbit around him and then back out into space again, heading out to where Venus awaited, a few million miles away. Venus felt a grim sense of satisfaction as her turn came to catch the rings. They were really doing it. They were really standing up to Jupiter. Sure, it was dangerous, but the hardest part was nearly over. Jupiter's rings were among his most prized possessions. When he discovered they were missing, Venus was certain he would move the heavens to get them back. If, for the sake of his pride, he had to strike a secret deal with the rocky planets that made him look strong to the other members of the solar system, Venus figured they could allow it. Scenarios like these danced through her mind as she flung the stream of ring particles further still away from Jupiter, toward their penultimate destination, Earth. Earth's trepidation had continued to mount as she awaited the arrival of the rings to her location in space. And strangely enough, her apprehension didn't fade one bit as she saw the front end of the ring line appear among the stars. Too late to back out now, she murmured to herself as the rings approached her. She caught the particles as they came, and tossed them to the moon, watching as they swirled around her smaller companion, and then shot off into space, now approaching the final member of their strange assembly line setup. As the rings settled into place around Bacchus, 
he was filled with inexpressible glee. How do they look on me? he asked Thoas, one of his outermost moons. Far better than they did on that old despot, replied Thoas. Excellent, said Bacchus. Now, we wait. Thank you for listening to this episode of Space Age Folk Tales. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating and a review. Be sure to check out our social media accounts, which are linked in the description. Also be sure to check the description to see where I got the sound effects and music I used in this episode. Thanks again.